Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this event. I'm Anoush Shekelian. I'm Britain Editor at The New Statesman, and I'll be your chair for the conversation today. And I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Johnson. Hi, Paul. Hello. Now, let me introduce you first. Paul has been the director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies since January 2011. His career has included spells at the Treasury, the Department for Education, and the Financial Services Authority. Paul is also the author of a new book, Follow the Money, How Much Does Britain Cost?, which will be the subject of our conversation today. If you're watching along live, we'd love you to get involved in the chat. Please do share your thoughts and comments. If you're on Twitter, you can also use the hashtag RSAEconomy. Today, we're going to unpick the topics in Paul's book, which is a thorough but very accessible dissection of how the government collects and spends the money needed to run the UK economy. It lays out where that money comes from, who it goes to, how that's changing and what reforms we need to meet new and expensive challenges on the horizon. If you want to understand the tax system, why our public services are in their current state and what governments could be doing to share out prosperity and invest in future growth, Paul's book has it all. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, your book's called Follow the Money. And while this may sound like a bit of a silly question to start with, it's actually very fundamental and more complicated, perhaps, than our audience might think. Where does the government's money come from? Is it all from us? Uh, in the end, yes, it is all for our, from us. It's um, uh, the government, it, it costs about a trillion pounds a year now, the total public spending. Now, the amount the government actually raises in tax from us is a bit less than that because there is a fairly chunky amount of borrowing as well. But of course, that borrowing mostly comes from British citizens in the short run, and uh, we have to pay for that in the in the longer run. And it's important, actually, at this point, it does come from us. It's, um, it's easy to think that it comes from companies, for example, when they pay corporation tax. But if you think about it, um, that has to come from us. It either comes from the customers uh, through higher prices or the employees through lower wages or the shareholders, which is you know, us in our pensions and ISAs and so on, in lower returns. Um, and of course, the big bits of income, the code of government, income tax, VAT, national insurance, that comes from all of us. Um, now, a lot of it, um, particularly from income tax, comes from the rich, the richest among us, um, so about 30% of income tax is paid by just the richest 1%, for example. Uh, but most other taxes are much more broadly spread. Right. OK, thank you for that. And you write that it now costs about £1.18 trillion a year to run the UK economy. Now, that's a huge number, which is difficult for us to visualise. Can you try and put that number in context, context <laughs> for us? Because it sounds huge, but then most services would say that they are underfunded. It is big. Um, it's about, well, what is it, something like 40% of, of national income. So that, that's huge. I mean, £4 in every 10 that the economy produces goes through the government, either to come straight back to us in pensions or benefits or whatever. So a, a good chunk of this is just cash being recycled or in buying and paying for uh, health services and education services and all that sort of thing. The other way maybe of thinking about it is that there are um, whatever there are 70 million or so people um, in the UK. So that is um, somewhat north of £10,000 per person, if I've got the zeros in the right place, um, <laughs> um, 
on that one, but obviously very uh, very unequally distributed. But the key the key the key thing I think to bear in mind is that give or take spending is about 40% of national income. So four pounds in every 10 uh, the economy creates um, it goes through the government. And why did you um, feel the need to write this book? I mean, do you think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of where that money comes from and where it goes, not just among the general public, but also the way that our politicians talk about it? Uh, it lot, lots of reasons for, for, for writing it. I mean, I, I, uh, you're exactly right. I think there is, uh, there, there, is, there is a limited, I think, understanding of how all of this works and what the options are and what the possibilities um, are. Governments are rarely um, fully honest about uh, about about what's going on. I mean, they'll tell tell us part of the truth, but they don't often give us the full context. And actually, people like me, and uh, particularly academics and so on, don't often um, put all of the effort that perhaps we should into putting forward our explanation of what's happening. Uh, but I didn't write this because I had an answer. I didn't write it because I think, you know, uh, if we shrunk the state, everything will be fine. Or if we cut taxes, that would help enormously. Or uh, universal basic income is the answer to everything. Or taxing the rich will sort it um, all out or, or whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's a book which really sort of lays out, this is really quite difficult, actually. It's not, it's not a series of questions where, you know, the politicians and the civil servants and so on, are just so stupid or so corrupt that they've kind of missed an obvious answer, which is kind of often how these sorts of debates are portray portrayed. Uh, the reality is that in almost, not quite, but in almost every sphere that you can think of, um, there are trade-offs that you can make some people better off and some people worse off. There are some things which look, from an economic point of view, absolute no-brainers, but they will nevertheless make some people worse off um, or offend some people, or cost some money, or what have you. So there's always difficult trade-offs here, and those are the things that we almost never hear. Because you don't hear politicians talk about trade-offs. You hear them talk about you know, this is the right policy, that's the wrong policy, uh, and you don't often hear that from commentators quite quite a lot because they've got their own particular um, uh, particular things that they want to sell. So I'm afraid it isn't a book of simple answers. I think if there is a theme to it. It's actually, as I said, it's all quite difficult. But we should do better. We could do better. And that's sort of the role that you play in public life, which is quite a unique role, really, isn't it? Because you're not one of those commentators that comes on um, to sort of argue or champion for a particular policy or, or a particular direction. You're the person whose sort of verdict we wait for as journalists on the budget or whatever fiscal event or some kind of very big transformative policy that's that's been introduced um how do you how do you strike a balance in that role because you know you can be very critical but also um you want to be constructive as well it must be difficult you must get some pushback from both parties um i mean, I mean surprisingly little pushback actually i've had very very little from um I mean, I mean not nothing but very little from the uh from the main parties pushing back i think they kind of recognize that it wouldn't do them an enormous amount of good um, and, you know, I think you know, there are some very good aspects of British public life where you know, people like us can play that kind of role. And it, it, it's, it's worth also saying, it's, it's very kind the words that you use. I mean, there's no 
I mean, neither I nor the Institute for Fiscal Studies or anything about us have got any formal role. We are a, a charity that happens to exist entirely by happenstance. Um, and you know, we have to fund ourselves through research funding year by year. And we might not exist in a couple of years if we can't get the research funding and, and so on. So it's no, there's, no, there's no formality about it at all. In terms of the role, I mean, it's partly, I mean, it is, I mean, the IFS has been around now for about 50 years, and it's a role that gradually, by being, in a sense, by being independent, by being objective, by being careful with the words that we use, by always basing what we say on the evidence uh, as best as we can see it, then I think we've built ourselves a, a, a reputation, which uh, which means that people like you, that people, that politicians and so on, will, um, you know, at least take some notice of, uh, of, of what we say. Uh, in some senses, it's not terribly hard to be independent of political parties because they're, I mean, they're, they're always peddling a particular line, which is never telling you, very rarely telling you both sides of any um, uh, of, of any story. Uh, but as you say, I mean, that doesn't stop us saying things uh, where you know, it looks like, in particular, a policy that's supposed to achieve X doesn't look like it's like it's going to achieve X, or there are better ways of achieving X. Uh, and so um, criticism certainly comes into what we say. Yes, and but it's not. It hasn't been uncontroversial. I suppose there was a recent review by the BBC into the assumptions implicit in some of its reporting about how raising money is down to tax rises and spending cuts, for example. And you do write in your book, someone has to pay for all this. And you've just been talking about the trade-offs that you think aren't often communicated by politicians enough. Um, but Britain can spend money without taxation, can't it? It can borrow to invest. It can grow the economy in order for it to spend more. Absolutely. And indeed, we have been um, you know, borrowing uh, for the first, the very first part of the book uh, refers to the enormous amounts of borrowing that happened through COVID completely appropriately and necessarily. Um, and, and, and also talks about the financial crisis and the large amount of borrowing that happened then. I mean, that is an absolutely vital, um, central role. Um, of the modern states, and it's something that the state wasn't able to do in previous crises hundreds of um, years ago, resulting in, in much worse impacts of um, whether it be uh, financial crises or, or pandemics. So yes, absolutely, the state um, can and must and should do that. Um, and you know, at the very least, there's a strong case for borrowing um, to cover investment spending, not least because it's future generations who will benefit from that. And there are times when there's a good case for borrowing more than that. I mean, there are two caveats to that. One is that um, you can't increase borrowing all of the time, so, such that the national debt rises continually into the indefinite future. Um, that's sort of obvious in a sense. Um, and the other is that in the end, someone will pay for that. And, and in a sense, we've seen that this year. Um, spending on debt interest has risen to, uh, or is rising to £100 billion pounds a year into the medium term, which is more than we spend on any public service other than, other than the health service. And that, that relates directly to the borrowing, to some extent we did through COVID, the fact that the Bank, has, Bank of England has done that through quantitative easing, and the fact that some of that borrowing is um, uh, directly linked to inflation. So we, we have seen... Um, We've seen it come back to bite us to, to some extent. So yes, it absolutely has to happen, but no, it's not costless.
And one of the big uh, discussion points in recent months has been that of growth. I mean, we mentioned uh, Liz Truss's mini budget and the whole idea of her government was this idea of going for growth. This is often referred to by economists in Britain as the productivity puzzle. And, you know, it has been a talking point in our politics for a lot longer than uh, since Liz Truss came to power. I mean, what does the country need to do to grow and why has there been such a drag on growth? Well, it's a very good question, and um, you, Liz Truss was absolutely right. I mean, we do need to, um, uh, in my view, uh, this is a value judgment, but it's my view that we do need to prioritise growth more than we have. Um, and actually, politically, we deprioritise growth for a long time. Now, you can take all sorts of examples of that. I mean, the, uh, currently, there's a lot of talk about the need for planning reform. Um, uh, clearly, if we were to build more houses in the southeast, that would be good for growth, as would building more roads and other infrastructure. But again, there's a trade-off, I and mean, this makes some people very angry. I think some of them worse off. I mean, it, it's it, it, but we we come down broadly on one side of that trade-off, which is an anti-growth side, and I would say that's true of quite a lot of choices. So um, there's a very clear case for Brexit on sovereignty grounds and on the grounds of managing our borders and so on. But it is also equally clearly an anti-growth policy. We are economically worse off as a result of leaving the European Union. And if we choose to remain distant from the single market, that's another choice that makes us worse off than we otherwise um, would have been. Uh, there, are, there are lots of things you could do to the tax system, uh, which would be good for um, growth, but we decide not to do them because they would make some people worse off and uh, upset them. Um, uh, and you, there are slightly more difficult um, things to explain. Uh, we cut, the government cut infrastructure spending very significantly in the early 2010s. Um, that's clearly been bad for growth. Cuts to education spending, um, uh, which happened through the 2010s and particularly further in vocational education, about growth. So we've made a whole series of choices um, which we didn't actually have to make, uh, mostly where there have been trade-offs. Uh, and I think those, those choices have been, have, have deprioritized economic growth to an extent which we are, and to some extent, um, reaping, the, um, re reaping the problems from um, at the moment because we, we've had very little growth over a long period. Uh, and, we're, uh, and, and very little growth in living standards, if any, uh, for a very long period. That's really interesting because in your book you say it's a dirty secret that our politicians, or at least the government, actually know what the remedies are, but they simply don't introduce them, perhaps because mm. they're electorally difficult or they upset people, in your words. Um, house building is, is, is an obvious one that you mentioned. And, um, I just wondered how you feel, you know, when you see politicians making, of, of different governments making these decisions over and over again. I mean, do you have your head in your hands? watching politics trump economic wisdom or do you sympathize with the electoral realities that they're working with well you know i mean they're, they're always working with electoral realities and you know there are lots of things that um in an ivory tower it's very easy to say would be a a good idea now economists have this awful thought to most people that actually would be a jolly good idea to impose vat at the same rate on everything um, and then find other ways to redistribute, and that would be more economically efficient. That's what most other countries do. Almost nowhere else has zero um, VAT on food. But completely recognise, of course, that that's um, politically a non-starter, uh, probably. Um, but there are other things which, which require rather less 
bravery, changes in the stamp duty system, for example, changes to council tax that requires some bravery if you're looking at the tax system. Um, and of course, as I said, with things like um, planning reform, um, it, was, it was two or three years ago now, wasn't it, the Conservatives lost a, a by-election because of concerns over, um, over building uh, in, in the green belt. And they dumped policy almost immediately um, after that. And I think that shows a lack, uh, an unnecessary lack of, um, of, political, of political bravery. Uh, there are also other things which you need to do, which just require much more long-term focus. I mean, our competition laws, the structure of our economic regulators, Ofgem and Ofwat and Ofcom and so on, really matter, but they really need to be focused on over long periods. And another thing that I talk about in the book is the, is the lack of consistency in government policy. I mean, the, the numbers, I can't remember the numbers, about the numbers secretaries of state for uh, for housing and for education and for um, work and pensions and so on over the last 10-15 um, years has been absurd uh, and the lack of consistency in policy in a lot of these areas has been equally uh, absurd. Uh, if, how, how do you expect companies to decide to invest in the UK when you've got the record we've had over the last year in terms of um, you know, is, is corporation tax going up? Is it going down? Is it going round and round and round? Um, uh, we, we sort of reinvent further education at least once a decade. Um, and, and then I suppose the, you know, the, 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 the biggest sort of meta point in a way is that political stability really, really, really matters for economic growth. Um, if you have a system where um, you're... You don't know where what what sides up in terms of politics. You you, you have a sense of um, people on either side uh, not taking um, uh, legal frameworks and so on uh, seriously, attacking the, the Treasury or the Bank of England, and all of these things. Um, that, that that in the in the end, those thing things matter. It's not anywhere near enough, but sort of basic political stability. Um, really is, is, is terribly important. Uh, you know, the, 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 by far the worst growing G7 economy in the last 20 odd years has been Italy. And, and actually the main reason for that has been their political, uh, their lack of political um, stability. And uh, we must avoid that at all costs. Well, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned Italy because I was going to ask you a bit about the British economy in comparison to those of its peers, because, you know, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, even explicitly referenced the declinism in a lot of commentary about Britain's economy lately. And, you know, some of that is understandable. Britain is the only G7 economy forecast to shrink in 2023 by the IMF. Um, and the UK has higher inflation than the Eurozone, the EU as a whole, France and Germany, as well as the highest inflation in the G7. So it does look like, you know, we are, we are having our own specific period of decline as well as what's happening to the global economy. And of course, there's been a lot to test the UK's resilience that's been outside of its control, like COVID and, and the invasion of Ukraine. So how much of this is self-inflicted by the kind of policies that you've, that you've referenced, like Brexit and austerity? And how much, you know, uh, does it say about the sort of long-term way that the UK economy has been structured. I mean, you write that we enter the mid-2020s in worse economic straits than at any time I can recall. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a cheery read. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, the, look, I, I mean, I, mean I, I would take 
for example, I take the IMF forecast with a pinch of salt. I mean, I, I you know, w- whether we are the only economy that shrinks this year, I, I, I don't know. And um, I don't, I, I, I you know, it, it, it was a strange forecast. Uh, but the um, but the broader picture is that we are the only major G7 economy that is today still smaller than it was pre-pandemic. Um, and over the longer term, um, our national income per capita has grown more slowly than most other countries since the financial crisis. Um, and you know, one of the consequences of that, again, as I say in the book, is that whilst, for example, we spend a perfectly respectable fraction of our national income on, on health services, it's less in cash terms relative to other countries than it used to be because the size of our economy um, is less than it, uh, than, than it uh, relative to them than it used to be. Um, and now, partly this reflects you know, a long um, uh, shadow of the financial crisis, which did hit us harder than most European countries because we've got a bigger financial services sector. Um, it, it's worth it, with respect to austerity. Um, Relative to most European countries, the UK wasn't particularly special in, the, in terms of how much austerity it had. I think you can make a reasonable argument that across the board there was too much of it. But I mean, if you, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the Irish look at us and think, well, what austerity? I mean, they had massive budget cuts um, uh, relative to us, and their economy has grown, you know, it's, it's grown enormously over over recent years. So, so, so these these are not straightforward um, uh, relationships. But I do think it is. You know, there are clearly a number of self-inflicted wounds. As, as I said, the, 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 the big cuts in capital and infrastructure spending, the cuts in education spending, Brexit very clearly. Actually, one of the tragedies of Brexit is that, or the Brexit vote, is you could see that things were just beginning to get better. Um, you know, incomes were beginning to rise for the first time. The economy was beginning to grow. And just as that was happening, it got cut off at the knees. Um, after that, after that Brexit vote, it's not all about Brexit. I don't want to obsess about that, but I think there is a tragedy there, actually, in the, from the economic, um, from the economic point of view. And something really striking in your book is how unequal a country we are economically, um, with housing and asset inflation making the rich richer, austerity, as we've been discussing, disproportionately impacting the poorest rents eating more and more into people's wages and council tax, which I think you mentioned earlier, which could be something that politicians could reform, charging at much higher rates in poorer areas than, than richer areas. Um, and you also write that our welfare system is extremely ungenerous to the unemployed compared with other developed countries. So, you know, why has this problem with inequality come about and what are some of the ways that you think uh, governments could tackle it? And why haven't those changes been made? Is it down to the same thing that we've been talking about, the political realities? Well, there's a lot of questions in there. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> the, um, I mean, let's start with um, inequality. The, um, there are different aspects to uh, inequality. Income inequality in the UK really skyrocketed in the 1980s. Um, and actually didn't change an enormous amount. Hasn't changed an enormous amount in the last 30 years outside of the stratosphere, the sort of uh, the top, not even the top 1%, the top 0.1%. Um, uh, but we are more unequal in terms of our incomes than most other European, certainly Western European countries. And as I say, a lot of that happened during the 1980s. Policy can do stuff about this. If you look at what happened over the 2000s under the Labour government, actually earnings inequality grew 
Um, but uh, because there was a big increase in the um, uh, generosity of in-work benefits, um, income inequality didn't grow. So you, you, you've got this you know, clear impact of state intervention. And you rather had the reverse over the last uh, decade, where you've seen, um, uh, if anything, earnings inequality, certainly over much of the distribution, shrink, because partly because the minimum wage has gone up so much. Uh, but income inequality hasn't shrunk because benefits have been cut. So th these things really have an effect. But you're talking to some extent about wealth inequality, which I think is in a sense uh, almost, I mean, not new, but 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 I think that what was driving a lot of current concern about inequality, partly between generations, because that generation which happened to have assets and indeed mortgages back in 2008 has done terribly well because um, you know, the interest on their mortgage has been negligible. The asset prices have risen, um, particularly housing prices, and that's been a problem for younger generations or those who didn't have assets 15 or so um, years uh, years ago. Um, and, and indeed, the importance of things like parental gifts and inheritances has really grown very significantly in the last 10, 20 years, um, having, you know, gone down over, over a long, long period. Uh, so all of this uh, points to less social mobility um, and inequality in wealth and assets, as well as the high levels of inequality in income and earnings that we, um, uh, that we have, all of which I think you know, pushes together into a, a real problem uh, with inequality. Now, what do you do about that? Um, yeah, again, it's really it's, it's it's not straightforward. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, there are a series of things clearly you can do to help those on the very lowest incomes through the benefit system, and it's particularly people out of work, the unemployed, who we are very ungenerous to relative to a lot of countries, which may also be economically damaging because if people don't have time to you know, gather their wits and look for the job that best fits them, as opposed to moving into the first job that comes along, which is what the, a lot of continental systems are designed. Um, to do. Um, in terms of sort of you know, taxes on, on, on wealth, um, first place to start must be to make the ones that we've got work better. I mean, council tax, capital gains tax, inheritance tax, none of them work uh, terribly well um, at the moment. And they could be made uh, to work better. So that, 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 that's, that's certainly where, uh, where I would start on that. Thank you. Thanks so much for tackling all of my questions in a very oh articulate, concise answer. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and, you know, you explore how money is spent mainly by focusing on the welfare system, care, schools, and particularly further education in your book, which I, I think is really welcome because um, further education is often something I think that's neglected in terms of sort of uh, mainstream coverage. Um, just from a journalist perspective, um, why did you focus on those areas of spending in particular? And what do you think those systems can reveal about the broader challenges that the government faces when it comes to its income and its outgoings and where it should be spending better? Well, the, the honest answer to your question is that those are the areas I know something about. <laughs> so the, the, the book covers welfare, pensions, health, um, uh, education at local and devolved um, governments. Now, you know, a, a better answer would be that they're also, they are also, as it happens, much the biggest elements of government spending. The next biggest element is uh, defence. Um, and then actually uh, most of the other e elements, um, e e even things like uh, police and justice and so on, are, are really much, much 
smaller. Um, and again, getting a sense of scale here is really important. We spend 180 billion on the NHS, which is huge. We spend um, 100 and something billion on pensions, 100 billion on working age, welfare, um, something like in the order of 70 billion on education um, and so on. Um, and that's a lot more than we spend on most, uh, we spend on most other things. Um, but they're also what you think of generally as the welfare state. Um, so um, I'm, I'm not covering spending on defence and transport and so on, which are not so much part of the welfare state. But um, uh, I, and frankly, uh, I think I think it's a real issue actually in terms of um, some of those areas. Uh, there are not many, I don't think, good independent economic analyses of how well we spend money on defence, for instance. I mean, there's some very good National Audit Office reports on you know, problems that, that, that exist. Uh, and, and there are um, uh, organisations which are very expert in sort of defence strategy. Uh, but I think there's probably scope for more there um, and in some of the, the other areas that I haven't covered. But yeah, lack, lack of expertise is the honest answer. It's, it's good to hear an expert say lack of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, let's let's pick on pick up on some of those those areas. So I thought social care would be a good one to talk about because you know it is one of those spending areas that's only ever going to increase because of demographic changes, that aging population. Um, but really, it's it's you know it's the responsibility of councils. But that fe often feels quite strange to me, um, especially because councils budgets have been squeezed over the past decade and they do seem to only sort of their, their only responsibility really seems to be to deliver this absolutely huge sort of service um can you tell me a bit about uh you know how that impacts the economy and how it could be structured better in your view yeah i mean you're right it's um it's, it's now by far delivering adult and children's social care is now by far the biggest responsibility that councils have you wouldn't know it i mean when boris johnson announced his big reforms back in autumn 2021 um he didn't even mention local authorities when he when he announced that despite the fact that they that they were the ones through whom all the money would flow and who would have to deliver all of these enormous reforms um uh, now again as with much in our public life a lot of this is dependent on on history it just it happens that um when the NHS was um, formed back in 1948, uh, that um, uh, was it, uh, that um, social care was left out of that. It was left in the hands of local authorities, and at that time there wasn't that much of it. There were lots of actual actually little beds in hospitals for long-term stay, um, and there were there were sort of rich people had um, some of their own um, uh, provision. And there was a little bit of local authority provision for the poorest. Um, and that sort of became much bigger uh, over time, partly as the NHS got rid of these long stay beds. Um, uh, and, um, and partly as actually the benefit system came to pay for a lot of social, uh, social care. Um, uh, at the same time, local authorities lost responsibility for Quite a number of things. Um, polytechnics in the in the early 1990s, they lost a lot, a lot of control over school spending uh, in the 2000s and in the 2010s. So that this is in a sense going to get more and more important, and less and less the, the, the extent to which local authorities get the money they get from 
central government is now less and less related to their actual needs. I mean, it's extraordinary that a lot of the data that is used for allocating money to local authorities to pay for social care is more than a decade out of date. And over that period, obviously, population demographics have changed enormously. Um, so there's there's sort of fundamental sort of competence issues there, and um, it, then there's been big cuts in local authority spending um, through the 2010s. Uh, now, to some extent, they've protected social care. I mean, cuts in social care have been much less dramatic than cuts in other bits of authority spending. But local authorities have become a bit like, you know, to some extent, the um, you know, the national sphere has become dominated by spending on the health service and the local sphere has become dominated by spending um, on, on social care and spending which as we all know is not, um, is not there to cover the needs of people who have at all significant assets of their own uh, which end up being used up entirely um, to, cover, to cover payments as needed. Yes, and um, and you actually write that um, this local authorities and the way that they have been cut um, has been sort of left out of the uh, levelling up agenda, hasn't it? I mean, the idea that you could empower councils to have more spending powers could have been part of levelling up, but was sort of overlooked. And that's something that you think could actually help the UK economy. Well, I think uh, I think some kind of additional, more devolution would certainly help. Um, we are... You know, as, as is sort of well known, one of the most centralized, England is one of the most centralized um, states in the developed um, world. Now, whether local authorities are, as they're currently constituted, the right level um, for uh, devolving really substantial extra powers to, as opposed to big city regions or big areas like um, it's being you know, trialed in places like Manchester. Um, is, is, I think, actually, in a sense, one of the barriers to change is that is it, everyone can have their own view about whether it's current local authorities or bigger areas or regions or whatever you, that you need to devolve power to. And I think, in a sense, we've ended up in this world where, um, because no, there, there's probably, there probably is genuine agreement across the piece that more devolution would be a good thing, but then lots of quibbling about what devolution and to whom uh, uh, and so on. But, I mean, the the the, the levelling up white paper of about a year ago was, um, in some senses, very exciting. I mean, uh, one of the few government documents I sort of read some of and thought, wow, this is quite exciting and quite well written and not full of guff. Um, but um, but but equally. Um, I also thought, well, it ain't going to happen, is it? Because it was uh, so ambitious. Um, and you talked about um, these such big changes to the way that the state um, is run that you could see that, well, yes, I quite like this as an analysis, and it's almost the sort of thing a think tank would have produced, but I'm not quite sure that it's going to produce the, um, the real change that's needed. So you're not optimistic that levelling up will stick as an agenda? Well, uh, I mean, I think the first thing is, is, is obviously you know, make, making real change here will take a long time and consistent policy over a long period of time. I mean, the, uh, the, the differences in economic performance, but not just economic performance in health and so on between different uh, regions, but also within regions is enormous. Um, and changes to that, and, and, and not just enormous, but have been there for a very, very long time. Um, uh, some, some of it has increased in recent decades, but the relative um, you know, underperformance of the 
the northeast um, uh, of Northern Ireland, of, um, of some parts of the Midlands, has been there for a, for a long period. I mean, London has pulled away um, uh, relative to where it was in the 1970s, for example. Uh, but, but, but economic inequalities between regions have been there for a long period of time, and it will take a lot of focus um, to uh, to make a big change. Uh, to make a big change to that, and I'm, you know, it, it will take more focus than we've seen from governments in other in other dimensions. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and that was um, that was sort of Boris Johnson's big idea, alongside, um, uh, you know, trying to deliver Brexit. Of course, we've spoken about that. Let's move on to Liz Truss, um, who I believe, you know, when you were finishing your book, it was when she was in government, and I think the the final edition of your book came out after her government had fell. So you did manage to include yeah. your verdict on the yeah. mini yeah. 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 Um, She's She's blamed her downfall since then on the left-wing economic establishment. Are you part of that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm left-wing or part of the establishment, <laughs> but um, I think it's a very bizarre, very odd thing to say. I mean, the, um, I mean, the problem was the markets, and the markets um, are, you know, definitely not left-wing, uh, and they um, and, and they respond to the information in front of them. And actually, you know, you could, um, I mean, there have been times past where you could, I think, as a government, have um, reasonably been quite sore at the way the markets treated you. So if you think of, think all the way back to 1992 and when the UK was forced out of the European exchange rate mechanism, that was by people deliberately speculating um, against the pound um, because they knew that if enough people did it, then it would be forced out and that they were onto a certain winner. Um, I think what happened back, you know, and, you know, that, that was in a sense, um, you, know, you, you could see why people would uh, get very angry at the markets there. What happened in September was rather different. It was um, uh, it, it wasn't huge speculators um, uh, speculating against the UK. It was um, you know, a an increase in the amount of uh, reward that people wanted to hold British debt, um, and an increase in interest rates, um, uh, uh, which. Um, uh, which were, were driven in a sense by the perception of the markets or fundamental problems. Um, now, uh, I mean, I think you know, there's one sense in which I think Liz Truss has got reason to be a bit sore about this, which is what was in the mini budget, virtually all of it, she told us she was going to do. <laughs> it shouldn't have been a surprise. Uh, the cuts in corporation tax, cuts in national insurance contributions, um, were, 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 you know, they, they she spent all summer talking about. Um, uh, I think I think uh, that she there were additional problems of a sort of psychological nature created by not using the Office of Budget Responsibility, firing the permanent secretary of the Treasury, um, undermining the bank, um, undermining the Bank of England, and then going on and saying, and you know, there's more to come. Um, uh, and I think that at that point you begin to lose credibility. Um, and people start to get scared, uh, actually, uh, about the about the coherence with which the economy um, is being run. I think what is an interesting question to which we will never know the answer is if um, uh, if if Kwasi Kwarteng had presented that budget, done pretty much the same stuff 
uh, but not done those other things, not fired the permanent secretary, used, you know, taken some OBR forecasts and said, look, we take these seriously, but we really believe in, in, in that this will grow. And we'll come back with a, a spending review, which will start to deal with some of this. It, it, it's an open question as to how much of a response, whether the reaction to that would have been um, significantly different. But I think the, um, the co combination of the policies um, the sort of political uh, insta instability, I think, created by some of the actions and the rhetoric, I think, put all of that together. And it really started to scare um, uh, people in the markets about what was going to come next. And that uh, that that you know, that combination, and it's very hard to know which bit played how big a role, that combination was was disastrous I and mean, it was catastrophic for um for the economy and for people with mortgages um uh and uh you know it, it's um it's fortunate that most of that has been has, has been fairly swiftly washed away yes and i think um you know people are taking different lessons from what happened then aren't they you know so Rishi sunak and jeremy hunt have been quite careful to say that they're not going to introduce any tax cuts uh, anytime soon and we'll see what happens in the in the spring budget um, because they are under pressure by backbenchers to introduce tax cuts earlier than they would like um, and then some on the left have been saying you know the problem wasn't that they that, you know that they, they were borrowing the problem was they weren't borrowing for the right things um, so you know it was almost like any everyone could read into what happened as a vindication of their own approach to the economy I wonder what you think the main lesson was out of that. I know you've said there's so many different factors and, you know, what ifs, and there are questions that we'll never know the answers to, but, but what did you think that it showed? Well, I think, um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it showed a number of things. I think, I think, I think it showed you need to, um, you, you need to take the public finances seriously. And you need to be seen to be taking them seriously. Now that can mean all sorts of different things and you can have arguments about what particular level of borrowing that means. Um, uh, secondly, if you are going to um, have very big spending increases or very big tax cuts, then you do need to say something about how you're going to um, fund them off the other side of the balance sheet. I mean, one of the things I suspect I say more than once in the book is that, you know, again, we've, we've got choices. We can have European-sized welfare states if we have European-sized taxes, or we can have American-sized welfare states if we have American-sized taxes. What we can't have it's a European welfare state and American size of taxes. I mean, they, you know, it's kind of obvious, but it's um, it's kind of fundamental um, as well. Um, I suppose the other thing is is this point about sort of stability. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I don't particularly know Tom Scholar. I haven't, he was the permanent secretary of the Treasury, he was fired. I've got no sort of um, you know, particular personal need to defend him. And, you know, yeah, he, he, I've no reason to believe he was the best or worst permanent secretary ever, but just kind of coming in and firing someone like that, brand new, first day in the job, and then introducing this kind of stuff um, is part of this, what, what I mean when I say that the politics and the, um, the respect for established institutions, doesn't mean you can never change them, but, but doing that sensibly is just fundamental to um, having a well-run economy. Otherwise, people will take fright. And how do you think um, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are doing in, in that regard? I mean, do you think that they have restored some credibility uh, in terms of Britain's approach to the economy and, and you know, in their show of respect for the public finances? Um, 
as you put it, um, because there are still problems, aren't there? I mean, we've got so many strikes, um, economic inactivity is a, is a big concern mm. um, and, you know, a drag on that growth that, that we were talking about potentially because of the state, perhaps partly because of the state that the health services is. Yeah, I mean, lot. I mean, lots of problems. Um, uh, I mean, I, I mean, what what Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have done is the sort of minimum necessary to sort of stabilise the ship. I think what is harder to see is what direction the ship's now steaming in, and um, and what they're doing to to get it there. Um, clearly, there are enormous um, issues around, as you say, public sector pay, which is. Uh, which has done much worse than the private sector over not just the last couple of years, but over the last 15 years. And you can't, you just can't keep that up forever. Um, uh, uh, you know, problems, you know, very hard to solve problems around um, economic inactivity um, and so on. Uh, so, um, and, and interesting on the public finances, I mean, Jeremy Hunt was nowhere near as um, uh, sort of conservative with the small C as his rhetoric would imply. I mean, he's sort of um, still borrowing reasonably significant amounts. And for the first time in the last 15 years, really, you've got a conservative chance of saying, look, I, I can't actually get to current budget balance. So, so you know, dubious to things, um, look into the future. So, you know, I think they've stabilised the ship. Um, but they've done what needed to be done to sort of get us to sort of ground zero, as it were. Um, but now but, but now they need, we actually need something which looks like a, a longer term strategy, which of course is really hard because they know there's an election in less than two years. Um, and uh, you know, how they play the short term against the long term as ever is one of the biggest political and economic um, structural problems that we have. Well, I think that's a whole other conversation for another <laughs> event but thank you so much well i'm afraid that's all we have time for but it was a brilliant discussion um and it's been great to speak with you thanks so much for talking to us today paul's book follow the money is out today the rsa have provided a discount code for anyone buying the book through foils the code is foils rsa 20. both the code and a link to the book will be appearing in the live chat as we speak thank you to everyone who tuned in to watch and thank you to the rsa for hosting this event if you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit thersa.org. Thank you all for watching and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.